0: Welcome to Bandit's Keep. I'm Daniel. This week we're going to dive into the spells. So I've got my book open in front of me with all my pencil marks and notes of the various changes I've made to spells. When I write up this book this month, I'm going to have all the spells basically or their equivalents from original Dungeons & Dragons, including all the ones in the three little brown books, that is. None of the supplements. Some of their names and such, I will need to change, and I'll have to rewrite them, obviously, the ones that don't have changes, in order to not have an issue with the OGL as it would be. But I'm, what I'm going to talk about here is the ones that are basically changing significantly. So, for instance, Detect Magic is Detect Magic, right? I don't dispel <laughs> spell Detect Magic. But I'm going to talk about the ones that, that are affected mechanically, because I think that's where the, the issue is, or the thoughts are, or the, really the playtest was, right? So let's start off with Protection from Evil. This spell has become quite powerful in my game. And, you know, depending on how you read it, (laughs) you could take it a lot of different ways. It basically says it hedges off attacks from evil or creatures, right? So in my game, that basically means if you are an evil creature, you are a zombie, you are a demon, you cannot hit physically or touch or grab somebody who is protected from evil. So it's only a first level spell, but it is tremendously powerful. And my my players have found great use in it. However, in my world, and this is going to be important to the game, not everything that is chaotic is evil. When I think evil in the sense of chaotic, I think two types, effectively. When I think chaotic, is what we'll say. And I'm probably going to change the name of the spell to Protection from Chaos. But anyways, there are the chaotic creatures of choice. That is, creatures that can think and choose for themselves, like, let's say, an orc could be chaotic or neutral or an ogre, right? Some tend to lean that way, giants. But they don't, it's not in their nature, right? It's not, they're not magical creatures. I mean, I guess a giant might be considered magical. But in my world, it's not a creature that is like, they don't have a choice, right? They have a choice. They just want to be chaotic. Something like a chimera or something like, one of the chaotic dragons, and I know that's where they get the weird spots because, right? Because dragons are a thinking creatures, so I may have to think about dragons. But let's say a demon. There are certain creatures that are straight up; they're just that kind of chaotic. So those kind of creatures. So the undead would be a good example. If you are a vampire, you are truly of chaos, right? And those are the ones that you might think of as more. I'm here, here as evil, right? So if you want to think of evil, so a vampire. If you cast Protected from Evil on yourself, a vampire could not strike you. However, they could charm you. <laughs> they could cast a spell at you if they have spells. So it's not like they can't harm you in any way. They just can't touch you. And again, I'm going to leave it open to tables to interpret this, but I would say they can't like use a sword, right? Because if well, they just use a sword, then they're not touching you, right? I would say any kind of physical attack, they just can't do. However, if somehow they could attack you, with a spell or whatever, they will be treated as one-hit-die-less. And creatures that are chaotic in the sense they chose it, like let's say an ogre that chooses to be chaotic, those creatures just, they can still attack you, they just simply fight as one-hit-die-less. So I need to write this up in a clear fashion, but I'll give you a quick example. Let's say that you are a magic user and you cast protection from evil upon yourself. If there is a Balrog in front of you, that Balrog cannot touch you. Now, if you're standing close to the Balrog and they immolate... (laughs) Right? Their fire might be able to reach you because I would consider that like a spell. So you don't want to get close to the Balrog, anyways, but they can't grab you and like hug you or use their whip to pull you in to immolate you. So you could stay, keep distance from them because they can't touch you, right? On the other hand, if the ogre went to hit you, they normally attack as four hit die, they would just attack as three. And the same as you attacking them back, they would only defend as three for taking them out for, against you. So that's kind of how that works, which makes the spell very, very powerful and probably one of the most used spells in my campaign so far. This is, of course, I'm started with, first of all, Magic your Spells, if I didn't make that clear. Okay, next spell that has changes. Charm Person. Well, there's really only changes here in the sense that every spell in this that has a saving throw, I, I list the saving throws because I don't connect the saving throws to the directly to the person or whatever. I, I connect it to the event. I've talked about this before. The one major change I'm making to Charm Person is that I, there's no real rule in the Three Little Brown Books of how you can break it. And but... My table, you know, I'll, I'll agree that if you ask somebody to do something that is extremely against their nature, they will get another saving throw. They're okay with that. So if you take this normal person that has a saving throw of 10 or better on two dice, you can have them strangle their brother, right? Which would be a terrible thing to do, right? Something an evil person would do. But at the same time, they'd get a save before they would do it. So they'll, they'll get a chance to do that. So now if you hey take what's happened in my game, if you have this high-level magic user that you charmed and you try to have them do something... You know, they're gonna get another save and likely break out of it, which is exactly what happened in the game. So this is how that is. You're gonna to have to play it by ear. I'll write some notes in here, you know, a little note. But generally that's the way it's gonna work. So you can this this allows for the sword and sorcery concept of the evil magic user charming a bunch of regular people and they're doing all kinds of stuff outside their nature and doing all kinds of craziness, vampires, right, stuff like that. But it precludes something like a high-level wizard failing their save just with a bad roll. And then you basically can have them do your bidding for the rest of their life. So that little thing is in there. I don't love the save based on their intelligence and check. I'm not into that. I feel like Charm Person is something that if you play with reasonable people, you understand what would break a charm. I mean, I even use that rule generally when I'm playing other games like BX. Which I believe kind of says something like that. If you ask them to do something against their nature. Okay, going to uh, the last of the first level spells. Sleep, the only modification here is the numbers because I'm trying to use all D6s. So instead of, I think it's 2 to 16 for first level types, it's 2 to 17. You can figure out how to make that math. Okay, second level, Phantasmal Force. So again, I have saving throws written in here. And what I have is it says any PC, which is basically any person, right? Anyone that states they disbelieve in in the illusion or is five hit dice or greater will get the saving throw. And then I have the save in there. And then obviously, the you know, things like if you touch it, all that stuff that's normally in the rule. The other thing I've listed here, because this has been a point of contention with myself and KR, is how much damage does something do? Like, how do you determine that? There's no rule for it. Well, every spell, and, and if you know a different spell and you can point it out no OD&D, uh, Three Little Brown Books, every spell that does damage does a D6 per caster level, as far as I can tell. So, yeah, I'm pretty sure that's true. Let me know if I'm wrong about that. But, I mean, Wall of Fire, but that's a little different, which I'm going to talk about. Any attack spell, we'll say, in the Three Little Brown Books does that. So if you use Phantasmal Forest and you have boulders fall on top of somebody, it'll do a d6 per level. So I'm adding that as a rule because I thought that was obvious, but clearly it's not. Locate Objects, I changed the range because it was ridiculous how little the range was. I made it a lot greater, 12 inches plus 2 inches per magic user level. Let's see, Wizard Lock, I put a note that says that the the caster can walk through it without breaking the spell, which I think it doesn't say that there, but again, that makes sense. Okay, down to third level. Hold Person, again, I have the list of their saves here. I I guess if you want to know, I'll just quickly read this one off. So Hold Person, so anyways, all saves are done in 2d6. It's equal to or greater is what you want to score. A normal type would be 10 or better, heroic types, 8 or better, Superheroic types, 6 or better. Magic users add three to their roll, dwarves and halflings add two. Any creature with ten or more hit dice, then the caster will save on an unmodified roll of three or better. Now, the main change I made here in play is I'm making it one to three versus one to four things affected, just because, again, I'm using six-sided dice. Okay, fireball. So here's something I discovered in play. And it actually isn't a change, which is that with spells in OD&D, at least with the Three Little Brown Books, if you save versus spell, you take no damage. So that's all I'm changing here. I bounced the fireball around a few different ways, thought about doing it like Dragon's Breath, which I'll talk about in another podcast when I talk about the monsters. And I've talked about it before. But I decided to just go straight D6 per level, normal. If you pass a save, no damage. If you fail the save, you take damage. And the numbers here are 11, 9, and 7 for normal heroic and superheroic. Okay, lightning bolt is exactly like... It's fireball. It's exactly the same thing. Slow spell. Move at half speed and attack every other round unless save is made. Again, there's a save listed, haste, uh, movement double speed, including attacks, thus attack twice every round. Uh, When the the spell ends, though, I have them make a saving throw, and if they fail, they suffer the effects of the slow spell. I thought that was a good little compromise versus having you age or anything like that. Polymorph Other, again, I just have a save in here. Wall of Fire, here's one that I need some feedback on. (laughs) Okay, so currently this is the way it's written, and I'm thinking about changing it. Normal types cannot pass through the wall. Heroic and superheroic types may move through the wall by succeeding in a saving throw. Otherwise, they will be held at bay and unable to make another action that round, and they can retry it. So this is with the... And of course, there's saves listed. This is listed with the idea that, you know, the wall of fire is, in wall of ice and stuff is meant to hold creatures back, right? That's the point of it. It's not really made, used as an attack. But the actual spell says that uh, creatures under, I think, level three, 3 hit die can't pass through it, and Undead passing through it take 2d6 damage, and normal people passing through it take 1d6 damage, which I think for a 4th level spell is pretty ridiculous. That means if you put up a Wall of Fire and a 4th level character walks through it, they can just walk through and take a d6 damage. That seems kind of silly. So what I'm thinking about doing it is if I do uh do the damage instead of the they're blocked which is what i have currently now so i'd like to that's really the question do you like the idea of being blocked or do you think damage makes sense and to allow them to pass through it in any case or it could be they take the damage if they pass through it but they're blocked if they fail the save let me know if you like that the other option would be if they don't make the save they're not blocked but they take d6 per level which would be like a fireball so like you're walking into a fireball Which would be pretty terrible. So let me know what you think. I'm leaning towards the idea of it just blocking them the more I think about it, because I think that's really the point of the spell. Wall of Ice is exactly the same. Again, except for its ice. Confusion. Basically, I just have saves down. Charm Monster. I made a note here that says, um, to reference Charm Person, because of course, the rule, the other rules in there. Okay, good. moving on to 5th level spells. Telekinesis. Uh, Again, it doesn't list that you can use it against a person. So I just put some saves in here if you're trying to use it against a person. Uh, Magic Jar. I added the saving throws again. Cloud Kill. Cloud Kill kills less than five hit dice creatures because that's basically what it does. So I had put some saves in here that people could pass through it. But which basically, okay, because the way I did this, let me just roll back, is effectively what's here. If you have five or more hit dice, you're totally fine. Otherwise, I think you save or die. So, again, I went into other books to see what was at. And I I believe it was AD&D that I looked at that said that if a creature has less than five hit dice, they don't get a save. They just die, basically. (laughs) Which, again, this is a pretty high-level spell. It's a fifth-level magic user spell. I'm not opposed to that. But what I had basically noted was normal types receive no save. Heroic types save uh, by a dice roll of nine. Superheroics are immune. Because again, that's the way it's kind of listed. The way it's listed here is it will, less than five hit dice, it will kill you. Otherwise, it doesn't really say. So the question here is, should I just make it straight up based on the hit dice instead of their fighting? Okay, and this this matters because again, originally when I first wrote this up, levels one, two, three was normal, four through seven was heroic, eight or more was super heroic. But I've since changed that. Now it's based on your actual uh, fight as. Meaning that somebody like a cleric doesn't get to like hero stature, I think until like seventh level. So that means this would kill a cleric up to seventh level, which is pretty tough. Although, honestly, five hit dice, it's going to probably kill them anyway. So maybe keeping it simple and just saying less than five hit dice is good. They don't have to think about it. Is that something I'm leaning towards? Let me know what you think there. No saving throw. It's just going to be if you're five or less hit dice, cloud kill takes you out. Editing Daniel jumping in here. You know, I looked back at Men in Magic and, you know, (laughs) this is a very powerful spell because, again, if we're looking at the three little brown books as they exist, magic users don't get five hit dice until eighth level and clerics don't get five hit dice until sixth level. So really, and what's funny is that's right around the time that they both get to hero level as well. So it very well could be maybe I need to roll back on my idea that only heroes, maybe heroes get a save. And superheroes are immune. So I might go back on that and just leave my original save there. Let me know what you think. I think that might be the easiest way to do it. Of course, then it comes to creatures and what do we consider heroic versus superheroic. And that's where uh, it might get a little fuzzy. So I don't know if I should have a different rule for the characters. I should just leave it the way it is and just make it super, super deadly. Or maybe just give everybody a save and just make the save really hard. So I'd love to get feedback on that one. Okay, moving on. Feeble Mind, I put saving throws... Stone to flesh. I put saving throws. Death spell. I put saving throws. Uh, Gia's saving throws. uh Denison great saving throws. So again, I already. That's not a change from anything I was doing before. Okay, here's another one that again has been manipulated and twisted, and I've tried a bunch of different things. Number one, I have two sets of cleric spells. One is the lawful and neutral cleric spells, and I have the anti cleric spells. So they're going to vary slightly, but cure light wounds again has been a thing. This is what I'm leaning to right now. What I have been doing, if you get taken out in troop combat. That is to say that if you're in the abstract combat and you have three hit dice and somebody rolls three hits that hit you and you're basically out, the Cure Light Wounds will just negate that last hit. However you want to imagine it. Again, I'm probably going to have to change the name. In fantasy combat, it will remove one hit die of damage. So that In that case, it is kind of healing. You are revitalizing you, maybe you want to call it. And in... Man-to-man, or but it's not really in man-to-man, in hit points, as far as hit points are concerned, like so from fire damage, poison, man-to-man combat, a cure wound spell cures all of your wounds. But it takes both you and the cleric out of play for 24 hours. So that's been pretty good because I, I we see the characters kind of lingering with hit point damage and they can't really heal it because the other way is I say five days complete, the rest completely heals you as well. So we do see some of my characters walking around and while we don't get in man-to-man combat that often... You know, a little fire damage here, a little poison damage here, their hit points are draining, and that can take them out even at high levels. So I like that part. What I'm trying to decide is if I should just make it, it knocks one die or knocks one hit away from you in troop combat. So that is to say, let's say that you are three, you have three hit dice and they roll five hits against you. Then it wouldn't bring you back. Basically, it would just reduce one of those, so they'd have four hits against you, which is still enough to kill you. So it's just not worth it, or it doesn't do anything, I should say. So I don't know. I'm debating that makes it a little bit more hardcore and maybe a little bit more like paperwork in a sense because you got to remember how many hits you had or whatever. Uh, But the other way is just easier. So I don't know. Like I say, right now it's working fine. I'm just curious what people say. The only exception here is if you die via poison, to which you need a neutralized poison spell, which is a higher level spell. Don't get killed by a giant scorpion. In Troop Combat, or you'll be bumming. All right, that's uh, Cure Light Wounds. Okay, now we have the Blessed Spell on second level. In Troop or Abstract Combat, you add one die to whatever you're rolling. In Fantasy and Man-to-Man, you add plus one to each roll. Going to fourth level, Neutralize Poison effectively acts exactly like Cure Light Wounds does in the sense that it brings you back, blah, 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 but it does it for poison. Cure Serious Wounds. Okay, so this one's similar to Cure Light. Again, I'll tell you how I'm using it and things I'm thinking about changing. The way it currently works is... If two of your friends go down in troop, in troop combat, you cla- you cast this spell and both of them will pop back up. If in man to man combat, that is not really combat but hit points, it will actually you can put two people you know into like a healing state for the 24 hours and they'll pop back up. So again, it basically just doubles your efficiency. In fantasy combat, though, it just heals two hit dice, so you could bring somebody up two hit dice. Now, what I'm thinking about doing here is to, again, if I go back to what I was saying in Cure Light Wounds, it would knock two dice away. So let's say, again, you have three hit dice, and they roll four hits against you. With a Cure Serious, it would knock two of those dice away. It'll be two hits against you to be totally fine. It'll make it a little more hardcore and, again, more tracking, but maybe that makes it a little bit uh, less powerful. I don't know. Let me know what you think about that. Again, I'm not not opposed to the way it is right now. To be honest, we have yet to cast a Cure Serious Wounds spell in the entire campaign. Because it's rare that two people go down at the same time. You know, and, and generally speaking, the Cleric would rather take other spells at 4th level. Like turn sticks to stakes. All right. Uh disp- Dispel evil. I basically have some saves in here. Now, again, I've made some changes here. Let me read to you what I have. Destroys any evil and undead within range that fails its save. Those that succeed must flee the area. This includes exercising demons. So again, I'm going to probably swap out the evil thing. Because this won't destroy like an ogre, right? It'll destroy only the purest of evil. So it will destroy all well, vampires undead, obviously. But it would make, like exercise a demon or destroy something like a a chimera, right? Or if that's uh, of pure evil, which I believe I list them as of as pure evil. Now, normal types receive no safe. So if somehow there is a normal type that is of basically a pure evil, which I don't think that exists, but let's say you homebrewed something like a, a one-hit-die demon or something, they don't get a save. They're just gone. Heroic types. So, here, instead of doing heroic and superheroic, I'm changing it. Heroic is basically if they fight on the fantasy combat table at all. Superheroic is if they fight on the fantasy combat table and have eight or more hit die. So, again, a vampire that might have nine hit dice would count as superheroic and would get a save of eight or better. If they succeed, they're fine. If not, they are utterly destroyed. Take that, Strahd. Okay, Quest has saving throws. Cause Light Wounds is kind of an interesting one. So again, this is not just the opposite of Cure Light Wounds. What I do here is it doesn't really have effect in troop combat. It doesn't really have effect in fantasy combat because it wouldn't make sense. Like it's not going to be powerful enough. You'd never use it that way. So what it simply does is it causes two to seven hit points of damage. And you could do that in any kind of combat. That's just how it works. So that is enough to kill now that I've changed the hit points a little bit. It is enough to kill like a regular person pretty readily. So I would say that it's still pretty powerful for a low level cleric spell. Bane, which is the opposite of Bless, is basically Bless but reversed. Uh, Cause Disease, again, just has saving throws. Uh, They have Neutralized Poison as well. It's exactly the same as the Good Clerics. Cause Serious Wounds, again, it's just going to do hit point damage. I believe this is going to be the way I'm going to do it. You will get a save, by the way. I don't know if I said that. Uh, It it does uh, 4 to 14 hit points. Okay, Dispel Good, again, is just like Dispel Evil, except it's, again, only things of pure good, so it's not going to be your lawful PCs, but it'll be like a unicorn, right, or an angel, something like that. Um, And again, I treat fantasy and stuff the same way. Finger of Death has a save, Quest has a save, and that's it. That's all the spells in Men and Magic, and with my changes, obviously. Let me know what you think about those few things. The big ones are the wall spells, because I'm curious what you think about the damage there. And the cure spells and slash the damage spells. I think the rest of them I got a pretty tight grip on. I guess Cloud Kill is the other one that's kind of up in the air. Cloud Kill is incredibly powerful. But again, I think that's the point. Sometimes when we're looking at these spells, you know, just looking at them in the book, we're like, wow, that's really powerful. But again, when we think about what level a wizard would have to be on to cast such a spell, because I think there would actually be a wizard to cast a fifth level spell. So you're looking at a, a character that is, I guess, a sorcerer. So that means that they're ninth level, right? You're looking at a ninth level character. So again, if you're fighting a ninth level magic user, then you are probably close to that level yourself. So the cloud kill is not going to be able to hurt the player characters. It'll probably take out their henchmen and any small group of army that rides up against him. Again, meaning that you need a powerful warrior in the form of a player character, whether it be a wizard, a cleric, or a fighter, to fight this warlock, right? Your regular people just aren't going to be able to beat them or the sorcerer as it would be. So anyways, that's the way I think I'm going to do it. And again, I'm going to slowly throughout this month, I'm going to be like writing these up. I may release them in a couple little booklets actually and then form it together. I'm not exactly sure yet, but I'm spending these first couple podcasts kind of just walking through the numbers with you so you have an idea of where I'm at. If you have any comments, please do call into the show. All the ways to do that are in the show notes below. And on that note, I've got some calls. Hey, Daniel, this is Dark Fluid calling in about
1: whether or not unicorns should be taken down by a chaos-infused magical weapon. I say absolutely, if for no other reason than it fits the fiction. Anyone who's seen the 1985 film Legend can tell you that even a lonely goblin can slay a unicorn using a fell weapon. In fact, due to the magical nature of unicorns, I'd argue perhaps the weapon itself does no harm at all, and it's simply being a carrier for the dark maleficence that actually is used to strike the creature down. Anyway, keep doing what you're doing.
2: Hi, hey Daniel. It's Michael. Chicago is in the middle of listening to your episode, Only a Hero Can Defeat a Dragon. Um, I wanted to get in my comments about your thoughts on monsters before I listened to the call-ins. Um, just overall, sounds you know, great. Sounds like you've uh, gone through and applied, you know, sense of consistency and logic uh, where it makes sense and where you've wanted to break out and explore certain concepts and ideas. Uh, You've done so. And I'm looking forward to reading that and maybe inspiring some of my own musings. Um, The unicorn. So that's an interesting creature. Um, I, I think I almost think that, you know, given how you're playing it as as uh, unicorns you know really tied in with law it would almost maybe be an npc kind of a creature or or something that you know the the quest giver um but the trope that i remember reading about unicorns was that you know they could be lured by a you know uh, at least in in catholic terms a virginal maiden (laughs) so you know um maybe a unicorn can only be killed by uh, a female uh, whether it's chaos or law you know I, I, I don't know if that necessarily makes a difference but the only one who can truly you know apply the killing blow is someone of you know the female sex um, you know and maybe if the the what hero would dare kill <laughs> strike a, a, a unicorn but you know if it happens that uh, you, you know anti-hero type or an anti-superhero uh you know they can you know strike the unicorn down the unicorn's basically on death's door but just can't quite sever the link to life unless you of know, the female sex i don't know it, it, it might be a fun little thing um all the other ones yeah i thought like, Lycanthropes sound really terrifying, so that, yeah, I'm listening to that, and my ad characters just got done killing a, a pack of Lycanthropes, and I'm like, mm, that battle would have ended up a lot differently if we used Daniel's rules, but uh, yeah, um, really good stuff, and I'm, I'm looking forward to uh, seeing how it, it applies and how I might use it. All right, I'm going to listen to the comments now, so you might get another message from me. Game on.
0: Okay, that was Dark Fluid from the newly minted podcast, The Silver Key. Really cool podcast. Started up at, I guess, the end of, well, the beginning, I should say, of last month. I think that's when they started. I didn't jump until about halfway through, and I've caught up, though, uh, doing RPG A Day. Lots of great stuff there. I'm not sure if they're going to continue, but I hope they do. It's a really great podcast. I will put a link in the show notes. Go back and listen to the RPG A Day stuff. Again, really good stuff. You know, whenever I do things like RPG a day, I feel like I'm just going. Oh, I like BX, but I think that Dark Fluid really dug in here and, and some really thought provoking commentary on those various questions. And of course, a familiar voice around here, Michael or Chicago Whiz. Thanks, Michael. Both of them uh, spoke of different ways to kill the unicorn, and I think that I think the luring of the unicorn was also in Legend, if I'm not mistaken. That they used the I mean, I don't think she was complicit in it, but I think they used the good character, the good female character to to lure the unicorn out and then the 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 chaotic uh, creature. Am I giving this spoilers for legend? <laughs> uh, shot. It's been a long time since I've seen it, but I also was told by my friend that that was the case, that uh, I'm not going off my memory fully, more that somebody said, oh yeah, Arrow in legend. So I like this. I like this a lot. And interesting enough, little... Uh, <laughs> little teaser for the future in for our, uh, I was going to say OSR October. I'm going to dig into the strategic review as I've been doing lately. And I've noticed that they have lots of monsters in here, right? That appeared in other places. And it's fun to see their, I'm assuming their first appearance. And what, what it was interesting was the other day, I was reading the Rakasha Rakasha, And I said, I can never say that correctly. Um, and they of course can be, this is a spoiler for players. Don't listen if you're a player, um, they can be killed a very specific way by a blessed crossbow bolt. And my understanding is that comes from some kind of a either a story or, or myth. And what I think is interesting about that is you could do the same thing with the unicorn. It could be a, you know, you could use the reverse spell, the bane spell, right? Since I was just talking about that uh, by, a, a you know, a anti-cleric of a certain level could maybe create this magic around the, the bolt. And, and as Dark Fluid said, maybe the bolt itself is not even the thing that harms, harms the unicorn. Maybe it passes right through the unicorn. But it's the evil that is able to penetrate that that uh, that takes the unicorn out or weakens it or whatever. Maybe it makes it more mortal, right? So that it can be taken by others. But I love this idea of the treachery that it would be that the only the the one who could draw the unicorn out, this is not, again, I don't think this is exactly what happened in legend, is the one that slays it. Like how terrible would that be? <laughs> I immediately started thinking, although not that they, killed them per se but i started thinking about this the old song puff the magic dragon right you know where the idea is that uh, although some people think that song is about drugs but anyways the in the story of the song um you know the, the the kid basically grows up right that's the idea right and then the dragon loses its power and kind of goes away so it's kind of like when you betray the unicorn it again maybe it loses its power maybe that uh you know female that that it they was trusted by the unicorn is is somehow, you know, defeats this unicorn on this way and it, and it forever, because I was talking about earlier about the whole idea of evil, like that's their choice to be evil and do this evil act and somehow it would taint them and maybe do it for power. Who knows why somebody would do something like that? But anyways, I love that. I love the storyline there. And it doesn't have to be, because it's funny because Michael was like, maybe it sounds like a unicorn would be a quest giver. Yeah, for sure, right? Or maybe a unicorn is something that you need. You know, you, you want to defeat these forces and you need to ride a mount into it. And, you know, a unicorn would be a great mount if, it, if they're willing to take you, being as powerful as they are and more or less unkillable, right? Well, I'm not going to say unkillable. Obviously, they can be fought on fantasy combat normally. So a, you know, anti-hero could kill a unicorn uh, just by straight up fantasy combat. Anyways, I think those are really great calls. Thanks, guys. There's another call here from Michael. And then we're going to finish up with one from Jason from the Nerds RPG Variety Cast.
2: Hey Daniel it's Michael again uh, listening to Collins about the scroll spells um, wow <laughs> it, it was an idea and it's taken on a life of its own that that's kind of cool. I'm I'm a simple guy I you know I, and I know some people like all the mini games, and you know well, we'll do this percentage on this and this spell has this percentage kind of mini game and that i'm. You know, I always come up with the ideas that sound great at the, uh, you know, when I'm making them, and then when you play them out on the table, you go, oh, that's really kind of clunky and really just arbitrarily limits the uh, players. So I probably would not limit the players' level on what scrolls they can have. The only requirement is is that they know the spell, um, which, you know, if you're playing the the true ODD with, with the rules as written... When you get that spell book of first-level spells, you know all those spells. So I would let a first-level uh, magic user make a first-level scroll because they know those spells. Um, as far as the percentage of disappearing, I, I'm i tempted to do one of two things. It's a base percentage chance that start maybe at 50% that goes down 5% each level. So, you know, a ninth-level uh, caster you know there's still a five percent chance that they might goof it up uh 10th level caster never goofs it up (laughs) always rememorizes from the scroll perfectly Uh, seems to make sense or i might do the best saving throw and i'll tell you i i often go to saving throws for a lot of stupid stuff because it's just so easy it's right there in the chart and i would be tempted to use the saving throw. That favors the mage the most, whichever one you know gives them the lowest uh, lowest number to roll against to be able to uh, memorize that without losing the spell. Because as you increase in levels, your saving throws get better and better. Yeah, um, gosh, now now I'm really tempted to. <laughs> I, it, it's funny. I, I started with all these house rules for my OD&D uh, Dungeon Twenty Three campaign. I have not really gone to using them, um, partially because the players haven't ran into them, partially because the more I've played od and the more I've just ruled at the table and haven't really done anything, but the whole idea of memorizing from scrolls actually really kind of fits my campaign, because my players are, well, they're... Prisoners and yeah, they might have that spell book, but it's really hard to get new spells or different spells. So we'll we'll play around with it. I'm going to give it a shot. And now I'm going to listen to the rest of the call.
0: I'm just going to break in for a second here, so I don't forget because there's another chunk to this message. So yeah, I mean, I think that's totally fine. Again, I was just like tossing out ideas. It is funny how you start getting more clunky and more mechanical as you go. Because my whole thing is that I wonder are we, maybe I, maybe I say this, but I'm probably like super nice at the table, right? When I'm making a ruling at the table, it's always nice. When I sit down and look at the books, I always get a little more like, oh, are we giving it away? And I guess my thought was that for the price of making a scroll, you could make the whole first level of spells as scrolls as opposed to making another spell book. That that was the main reason why I had like reasons that it would fade and stuff like that. Because if you're going to allow that, then the other way you could do it is just make the cost of creating a scroll equal to enough that it would basically cost the same as making another spellbook. That way, you're not really adjusting any of that part of it. It's just a matter of convenience where they can carry part of it or not part of it, you know, for safety reasons or make extra backups or whatever. I mean, currently, my characters in my campaign are carrying, like, multiple spellbooks from other people that they've lifted. You know, ultimately, they want to combine them into spellbooks, but they haven't had time or money to do it. So they are kind of carrying a bunch of loose stuff, including... Funny enough, scrolls, although it confused the heck out of them because I kept calling them scrolls and they were like, hold on, are these scrolls? But only because there they, they was like a hedge wizard who had a spell book and they just had them as scrolls. This is before this conversation started. So I was taken to just saying her spell book now because it confused them. So the way I do scrolls, I think I mentioned this before, is if you do get a scroll, uh, you know, like let's say you pick up a magic missile scroll or something, you can put it in your spell book if you don't know it. It just destroys the scroll. And it basically gives you a hundred percent chance of putting it in. That's kind of how I do that part of it, as far as finding magic. Since you talked about that, and I do allow them to actually put stuff in their spellbooks they can't cast. I just, you know, they can do it for the future. That way, they're not carrying around scrolls. Plus, I, I kind of like the. I don't want to say force that decision, but I like to say, well, you could put that in your spellbook to cast later, or you could keep it as a scroll. <laughs> you know, when they have that downtime, and they're like, oh, maybe I should put it in my spellbooks just in case. You know. So, anyways, that's just what I do there. Let's get back to the rest of the calls.
2: You know, I'm back. Well, I guess from your perspective, I never left, but I just listened to your explanation about the hits and all that. Um, it, it made me think, I mean, one, you're right. And, and it makes perfect sense that, you know, you're trying to model the the, the scene, if you will, that, that you see in your head and hit points and man to man would would definitely make sense. Um, uh, I too many thoughts. To, I, I think. You know, you bring up some good points about poison and other magical effects, and my first thought was, oh, yeah, the attributes, you know, because like a shadow, a shadow drains strength in uh, OD&D. Um, you, know, you have other other things that affect your attributes. Well, why not poison? No, poison doesn't necessarily have to... Drain your ability for combat, but if it's draining your strength, draining your constitution at, at some point, you know you're not going to be able to fight you're not going to be able to you're not going to be able to live um, there there's some thought there to to go in that route, so makes perfect sense um you know and again um it depends on the kind of game you're playing you know i'm I haven't ran into those things that, that you've run into yet because I'm still, you know, again, with, with my implementation, it's pretty cut and dry in a specific module, and I don't know if there is any poison in Village of Hamlet in the Moat House dungeon. I'm, I'm going to have to go back and look. I, off the top of my head, I don't remember a situation. Oh, maybe the giant snake. Except I think that was a constrictor snake. Anyway, I'm babbling here. Um, great episode, and I look forward to seeing what else you come up with. And, yes, uh, Holmes is coming. I've been chewing through that as I'm packing boxes. So, And in honor of your final request in your uh, episode, let it go. Let it go. Game on.
0: All right. That was Michael, like I said. So, yes, again, again, the ability score is also an awesome idea. I think that, in fact, I know that in my game currently, that's what I use for, like, if you fall in a pit trap. Because, again, I hate the idea of you're walking through a dungeon, you fall in a pit trap, you lose some hit points. You get into a fight, you lose some hit points. You get this, you lose some hit points. The next thing you know, you're you're at a battle you actually want to fight to get the gold and stuff, and you've got a quarter of your hit points. And maybe, again, maybe that's the game, and that's the way some people love to play it just didn't suit the heroic vibe for me, so I went to ability scores, and that is a very, very good point for things like poison, right? Or I guess even fire, right? You could say, hey, if you get breathed on by a dragon, then your, you know, your uh, your con goes down or something, you know. And and again, that would, that would actually fix people's quote hit points as well, which would fix meaning hold in one space, which would make a dragon's breath even more deadly. So. Yeah, I mean, I definitely could see using ability scores. Maybe maybe in the final version, that's what it'll be. Who knows? I guess I there's one thing, you know, there's so many dials to turn, right? And I think that's where I'm at. On some level, I like the most simple game ever. And on some levels, I like to just see where things could be. Because, frankly, I don't love things like with there's only one thing, right? Whenever I see a game that's like core mechanic, this is how it works. I tend to just drift away from that. I don't love that. I don't love that you always roll the same. I don't love that this that uh, you know there's only one way to do everything unless I'm just throwing down for a one shot. If I want a more in-depth game, I want the players to sit there with the game and go, how can I make this work? All right, my character has a really high dexterity and generally speaking, the rules are if you fall into a pit trap, then you're gonna lose points of dexterity. If you get to zero, you die right? Well, who's gonna look for the traps? Who's gonna move forward in the hallway? The person with the high decks. And that also makes sense because the person with the high decks, you know, if you're gonna do any kind of like a reaction and you want you know, you want to roll against a stat, you have that, right? You also have the idea that just thematically the person with the highest decks should be the stealthiest person, right? They're the most light on their feet. So all that ties in and, and suddenly you don't need a thief, right? Just the fact that you're using the decks as you know the 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 narrative story point and the mechanical use for when things like traps happen that makes the character with the high decks the quote thief and they don't have to play a thief class they can be a magic user they can be a fighter they can be a cleric if they've got the highest decks they're probably sneaking ahead they're probably going to be the le- best likely to survive if they fall into a pit trap and if you're doing things like dodging and stuff based on decks. If you want to do like a reaction, you're you're probably rolling against that. Most people would. So I love using ability scores, but I also don't like using ability scores for everything because that's where we get into some other games that I just don't care for how they work out because then your ability scores become too important. So I love a mix and maybe in the end that just makes the game more clunky than it needs to be. I'm not sure. I guess we'll find out. To be fair or honest, 99%, well, maybe not 99%, 90% 90% of everything that happens at the table is usually using hit dice in my game. Very rarely do we use man to man and hardly ever is there an effect like poisons and things like that that hit, affect their hit points. So it doesn't come up that often. But when it does, it's definitely something to think about, right? And again, it creates a player choice. Like I said this earlier in the podcast, currently several of the player characters in the group are injured, but they're only, you know, they're like they have like 20 and 30 hit points apiece. They're all down like three, four hit points. And the question is, do they want to stop for a week to heal or even be out of the game for 24 hours? Like, do they want to be sitting there having heal spells cast on them and have and lose time when they're going after something? And that's a player choice. And that's something I really like. So thanks again for calling, Michael. Always good to hear from you. We have one more call from Jason. And, and honestly, if he does not sing at the end of this, I'm going to be a little sad because really, we probably should end ended with a song.
1: Hey Daniel, Jason here, just calling about your latest podcast, The Only Hero Can Defeat a Monster, I think was the title, and yeah, I like what you're doing there, I do want to hear the 45 minute episode where you just read through all the monsters, I think that'd be fun for for some of us. Um, As far as unicorns go, yeah, I think peasants with a chaotic weapon should be able to kill a unicorn, and by the same token, to kill that dryad, I think you should have to destroy the tree. I really like those ideas, and I think thematically they work. Um, As far as, now that we're into the call call section of that that episode, should you have a chance of destroying a spell book by copying spells? I think so. I think if a spell is a higher level than the caster would normally be able to cast, then there should be a chance of destroying wherever they're copying it from into their spell book. There should be a chance for failure, and that failure is is not maybe you do a two-tiered failure. Maybe the first tier of failure is they can't copy it correctly into their spellbook, and the second tier is not only can they not copy it correctly, but they also destroy the source document. So they would destroy that s- scroll or destroy that spell spellbook they copied it out of. You know, if you want to be nice, you could just destroy the spell in the spellbook. But I, I think it ups the stakes quite a bit if they destroy the whole spellbook. I don't know. Maybe that's just me being cruel. As far as holding on to hit points, the discussion you had with, with Michael, Michael's call, yeah, you know, I, I think we do hold on to some of these things, like you say, maybe just because we're used to them. But there is something valid about having lingering wounds. I really like the you're dead or you're not aspect of a lot of the things in Chainmail. But since you're doing an ongoing game... That there is some sense in having lingering wounds. And I think, especially if we're going to use Chainmail as the combat for our ongoing D&D game, role-playing game, that combat isn't the only thing we're doing, but we're doing a lot of other things in that game. I think it makes sense to have lingering effects. Now, not every combat is going to have lingering effects, of course. But I think, especially if you're in a major fight, if you're fighting off uh, against a enemy enemy, you know, evil high priest, or you're fighting a, a, a captain who's a swordsman or something, and, and, and you get wounded in that, there should be a chance of getting wounded in that, and that wound kind of following you. And we see that in the fiction as well. So, yeah, I think there needs to be some kind of lingering wounds mechanic. I don't necessarily think you should have lingering wounds after every combat, but I think if you're, you know, fighting that big monster, you know, they might wound you, and, and you might be weakened when you hit your next encounter and I, I think that's realistic. Um, and, and like I say, I, I think it also fits the fiction to some degree. So so I like that option. The the question is how do you perfect how do you put it in there and still keep things simple enough. And and I'm sure you'll get that nailed. So I'm looking forward to the final product. Looking forward to your next episode. Take care and I'll talk to you soon.
0: That was Jason from the Nerds RPG Variety Cast. If I didn't say that already yeah, right. That last point is such a good one. How do we put it in there and have that little bit of crunch, right? But also keep the system simple enough that it's quick to play. It's easy enough for new players. You know, you don't want to intimidate people either. But I'm going to jump back for a second and talk to the talk to the spellbook idea. Yeah, I kind of like that a lot. I like the idea because then you have this idea of like, all right, I'm this like fourth level magic user and I'm sneaking into this high-level wizard's tower to, like, copy a spell out of their book without them knowing about it, right? And you have that, like, Sorcerer's Apprentice thing where they, like, trash the book. (laughs) That could create a very interesting situation. So, yeah, you know, I kind of like that. I like the idea, although what I was originally thinking when you were saying it was, ooh, it could be a secret role. So you go in there and you copy that wizard's spell, and it doesn't, you don't know that you did it wrong. Because how would you? Unless you have a critical failure, right? So maybe you have... I know that you said call it two tiers, but maybe what you do is you do like a a critical, right? So you basically, you roll whatever the roll is going to be and they fail. And, you know, secretly, obviously, then you make another roll to see if it was a terrible failure, right? You're you're second tier. And that failure is the critical one where the book blows up. So I guess you know that you failed (laughs) really badly. Uh, It could also destroy your book. It could be like everything, you know, like maybe there's like a minor explosion, like like a minor fireball in the area and there's damage and everything else. It could be really bad. You could imagine Magic Users Labs blowing up all over the place. <laughs> so I don't know how far you want to take that, but now that's me being mean, right? But yeah, I like it. You know, to be fair and to be honest, like I say, I've said well, I said that twice. I'm being honest a lot today. I guess I'm always honest. I tried to be, anyways. At the table, I tend to try to do whatever's fun. So as much as I like to write things down and think about how they play out, in the end, when we're playing the game, like for instance, I was using I just did a video on Sage Rules. And I wanted to use them to see, like, how much information they get on this item. And it was going to take, by the rules in ad d like, three to 30 days. And I was like, that, you know, I don't want them to sit around for three to 30 days. I mean, they would have, but it would have just been like, okay, that's just going to backlog out everything. Because what I wanted them to do was get the information, right? I, I wanted that. And I know that now I'm, I'm making, maybe that's railroading, but, like, I was like, You could probably get the information because they found out they did everything right. They found the right people to ask. They found the place to do whatever. They got the best sage that knew all the information. And I rolled and I'm like, they know it. And I'm like, but they don't know it. Right now it's like, that that being said, the exacting information is three to 30 days. Some of the information was pretty readily available. So I guess the reality is that probably I, I could have just given them part of it, which I mostly did. So maybe that kind of resolved itself and it was more of a big deal than I thought it was when I looked at those days. Because, you know, I I knew I made the role and I just started talking and I was like, oh, crap, I didn't look at how many days it was. (laughs) So like anything in the game, it's all what's fun at the table. I try to be consistent when I can. I try to make it as fair as possible in the game. But at the same time, when it comes down to it, if it's fun and it makes sense for people to be able to do cool stuff, I like them to know there's a chance of failure. I like them to make the choice to do it. And then once they do, we stick with whatever that thing was. So I think that's it right there. I don't necessarily want too many rules codified. And I think something like a very simple line that says something like, it may be dangerous to copy spells uh, into your spell book that are a higher level than you can cast. And that's it. You can just leave it at that, right? That's what makes a game like OD&D really strong. Just letting the players know that and letting the DM at the table decide what exactly does that mean? And I think that's one of the strengths of... And that goes back to the simpler system, right? It's not, I'm not going to nail it all down and tell you exactly what it does. You'll have to kind of work on that a bit yourself. It's like going all the way back to what I was talking about. The very, was the first bell? One of the first bells I talked about was Charm Person. And that's it. I wanted to make it clear that there are ways to break the Charmed Person, but I don't want to list them out specifically based on intelligence and class and this and that and time. I just want to say, look, they're charmed. You know, use your best judgment if you charm somebody and you ask them to do something that's against their nature, they're going to get a saving throw. How you handle that is up to you. You could make the save after they do it. Again, that could be tragic, right? You're charmed to strangle your captain of the guard, right? You're a regular guard. You strangle the captain of the guard in his room. Then you give him a save after he does it. Now he comes out of it knowing he just murdered this captain of the guard, right? Or do they get the save as soon as you give them that command? Is it the thought of strangling the captain of the guard that gives them a save? Or is it the act of actually having done it that breaks the magic? This is up to the DM, and it's going to be different, in my opinion, depending on the situation. And that's why I don't like super codified rules for stuff like that. So that went around in a big circle. But what I really want to say is thanks, everybody, for listening. Thanks to Dark Fluid, to Michael, and to Jason for calling in. I will put links to their shows in the description below. I'll also have a link down there to my Discord server if you'd like to join up over there. Lots of fun conversations going on over there. i have put a link to my YouTube videos if you don't already watch those. And also a link to my Patreon if you're interested in supporting the podcast. In any case, I'll talk to you soon.